0: House Call, an Infinity Strategies podcast, dives into issues central to healthcare, explores ways in which healthcare professionals are advancing medicine through research and improvements, as well as the impact of quality assurance standards. Episodes highlight how healthcare professionals and organizations are connecting with communities, including underserved and marginalized populations. These firsthand stories will unpack the rapid changes in the field and answer the question, why we do what we do. Hopefully, these stories will inspire you to think differently about the healthcare system and take action. Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I am the host of House Call and Affinity Strategies podcast. Our second episode is called Finding Your Voice. Dr. Seth Daly and I discuss his laryngology practice his passion regarding walking with his patients to find the most helpful and innovative solutions, and how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the delivery of care to his patients. Dr. Daly and I talk in detail about the connection between public policy and laryngology, the many healthcare barriers that continue to persist, and the proactive steps you can take to stay healthy. I hope you enjoy the Finding Your Voice episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Today on the show, I'll be talking with Dr. Seth Daly. Dr. Daly earned his medical degree from New York University and completed his residency in otolaryngology head and neck surgery at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. He received fellowship training in laryngology at Harvard Medical School and is certified by the American Board of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. He specializes in surgery for voice disorders, such as vocal cord paralysis and cysts and polyps of the larynx, airway stenosis, as well as swallowing disorders, including reflux and Zenker's diverticulum. The focus of Dr. Daly's research is on vocal cord reconstruction, vocal fold scarring, office-based procedures, precancerous lesions of the vocal cord, and laryngeal education and the aging voice. He currently practices within the University of Wisconsin Healthcare System in Madison, Wisconsin, and serves as the Chief of Laryngology and Professor of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin of Medicine and Public Health in the Department of Surgery, which is a division of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. Welcome to the show, Dr. Daly.
1: Thank you very much. You did a nice job with all those mouthful medical terms, Claire.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, we uh, spent some time practicing and you are kind enough to help me be sure that I understand the appropriate pronunciation. So thanks a million for that. You bet. So Dr. Daly, before we get into our substantive questions here, I couldn't help but notice that you may be based out of originally in the East coast. Is, is that in fact true?
1: That is very in fact true.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yes.
1: So yeah, I grew up in New York City, uh, ah. right in the heart of Manhattan, did all my secondary schooling there, went to college there at Columbia, and then the rest uh, you noted in your intro. But uh, yeah, I came out here about 17 years ago for the job to be at a dedicated Voice Airway Swallow Center. There's a long, beautiful history here at UW-Madison and wanted to be part of that and was willing to leave the mothership, as it were, ah. and uh, make my way out here.
0: My goodness. So tell me, what was it like as a native East Coaster to relocate to the Midwest?
1: I had made a microcultural change when I went from New York to Boston, mm. because I was very much a New Yorkie kid, even though I may not sound it. And so I had some preliminary introductions to regional cultural changes, and that was a good eye-opener. But I learned that certain things fly better in the Midwest than others. <laughs> And I was alerted to this by my chairman who was in turn alerted by some nurses who thought that I was Mr. Meanie Pants when in fact, I'm really not. But there were some linguistic alterations that needed to be made and some expression changes related to turning down the dial on irony and sarcasm and hyperbole, which were the big three and probably cursing a little bit less, (laughs) which I've only partially been able to curtail, (laughs) but that's okay.
0: Well, you know some folks say that uh, cursing is actually a sign of high intelligence
1: yeah I've, I've read googly uh, podcasty things about that, but I'll take that as a positive uh, whether it's true or not. That's right
0: that's right well, thank you for that i uh, I appreciate understanding a little bit more about your background and and I'm certainly always interested to hear about folks transitions from other parts of the country to to the Midwest. so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you bet. So how would you describe your specialty for our listeners?
1: Sure. So I think it's important to, you know, just for a little bit of micro framework to understand medicine because not everybody gets it. In general, there are three major segments of medicine, capital M. There are medical fields like gastroenterology and pulmonology and cardiology, heart, lungs, gut. And then there's the field of surgery, which I'm a part in a little subsection. And then there's OBGYN. And some would take issue as to where pathology goes and some other stuff and radiology, but that's okay. Those are sort of the general basics. So within surgery, you know, surgery, let's call it 70 years ago, the saying was that surgery was the practice of surgery of the skin and its contents. Meaning that if you were a general surgeon 70 years ago, you might operate on a hip in the morning and do a hernia midday and do a craniotomy and open up someone's skull and do brain surgery, you know, in the afternoon. So people kind of did everything. As there was more and more expertise and more and more written about different subsegments, there was inevitably a division into different subspecialties. And a lot of this happened actually at Hopkins under Dr. Halstead about 100 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. So one of the first chiefs of otolaryngology was at Hopkins. So otolaryngology became its own thing. And then first it was eyes, ears, nose, and throat. So if you look in some old textbooks or this, that, and the other, or some of the old conferences, they were E-E-N-T conferences. Okay. And then ophthalmology, the eyes, Mm -hmm. uh, separated away. And then we were just E-N-T. And then we wrestled with the general surgeons who were cancer doctors. And we began to do more and more head and neck surgery, probably better than them. And so that was a shift. And so now we are otolaryngology head and neck surgery. And, you know, within that semicolon, there are, (laughs) there are now little subspecialties as well. So I'm in one of the little nerd subspecialties of otolaryngology called laryngology, which is disorders of the larynx and upper airway. So voice problems, airway problems, meaning airway narrowing, and then swallowing problems. So Mm. that's kind of what I do. And in fact, when I Started in this 20 years ago or so, laryngology was just beginning to be a thing, just beginning to be a little micro subspecialty. And now it's grown and blossomed. But that's the general idea. That's where I fit.
0: Excellent. And I. I have no doubt that within that very small specialty that you're a part of, there's a wide variety of things that you see and do every day. So could you maybe the best you can describe a typical day for you?
1: Sure. So for me, my general job is to wear three hats. One is to take care of patients and do good high-level clinical care. Two is to educate people. And we've had a fellowship here for about 12 years or so, which we started and then do research. So wow. trying to educate the next generation and help the general public get better care through advancing ideas or techniques or an understanding of any one given problem. So we split our time in different ways, but most of the time is clinical care depends on sort of where you asked me in my career, mm-hmm. uh, how much research I did. It was a little bit more before, a little bit less now, and a little bit more administrative and sort of higher level stuff now.
0: Interesting. And when you were younger in your career, how did you fit all of that in?
1: Yeah. I think most people in academic medicine who try really hard would argue that it's 10 pounds in a five pound box. Mm -hmm. Um, The answer is that you don't really fit it in. Mm. And so depending on the time or the situation, something is going to you know, suffer (laughs) Mm because you just, you can't do it all. I think the notion of doing everything at a really high level is, especially nowadays with contracting medical reimbursements and things like that, like Mm -hmm. it's becoming harder and harder to really wear three big hats. You might have a big hat and a medium hat, and a small hat or some combination therein, but it helps to be youthful and, you know, wildly energetic. So that helps in the early part of the career.
0: Yeah. I would imagine, I would imagine it does indeed. Yes. So if you could tell us, how did you ever become interested in becoming a medical doctor?
1: That's always a good question. So for me, it was reasonably straightforward. My father is a retired general surgeon. Mm. And so we had, you know, lots of medical talk. My mom taught biology for a while. So it was in a sense a partly science-y household. And so there was a lot of talk uh, around the dinner table or whatever about colons and you know, rectums and, you know, all sorts of other stuff. And a funny story is that when my father would sometimes drive me to school, he ran his own office, you know, and there would be little formalin containers with people's excised hemorrhoids <laughs> sloshing around on the, <laughs> on the uh, dashboard as we drove around town. So I had a pretty upfront experience, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, uh, with medicine from a pretty early age.
0: So what did your friends say about the hemorrhoids on the dash?
1: I don't remember sharing that a whole lot with them. Not that I was afraid to share it, but just honestly, it never even crossed my mind. It was so sort of normal or everyday. Like, why would I even mention that? Isn't that what everybody does? You know? Yeah. So it's a sort of lack of perspective perhaps as a child, but no, I do not remember sharing that much.
0: (laughs) So how did you decide on the specialty of laryngology?
1: Sure. Yeah. That's, um, it's always interesting, the paths we take. So when I was in medical school, I felt pretty sure I wanted to do something in surgery. And I always enjoy finicky little, you know, small instruments and functional surgery, helping people to work better in their lives, restore Mm -hmm. function, that kind of thing. And we had an older family friend, mentor to my father, who was a hand surgeon. And that always seems like Mm -hmm. that makes sense. There's a mechanical logic to it. You really help people get back to better function. I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I was going to be an orthopedist and then do a fellowship in hand surgery. And I was all set, feeling comfortable. And so I had some time to kill in medical school. And I went to do an elective in ophthalmology. I thought ophthalmology seems pretty cool. I'll go and do a one month rotation in that. Check it out. Mm -hmm. So I went to the bursar's office at NYU and they said, eh, off those full. You could do ENT. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever. So three days into my ENT rotation, I discovered that I had completely missed the boat. And so there you know, fine ear surgery and the facial nerve and vertigo and tinnitus and smell and taste and voice and swallow and breathing and all these things happening all in a small area. And I thought, oh man, I want that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I had to retool everything. And it was a bit of a, what's the modern expression, dumpster fire, um, trying to get everything <laughs> going and reorganized. Uh, But I did it and managed to get a spot in otolaryngology. And, you know, when I was a child, we grew up with a lot of music in the house, people playing instruments. There's always classical music playing. My mother speaks five languages. You know, I sang in the opera for a couple of seasons in New York City when I was a kid. And so music and sound and everything was really kind of my jam. And so I thought, let's do the sound part. So I wanted to pursue a voice-oriented fellowship, which I did with Dr. Zytel's at the Mass Eye and Ear Infirmary in 2001.
0: Wow. That is such a cool story.
1: It's all true. <laughs> that, it's amazing.
0: So you just mentioned a couple of things that I feel like I, I would be remiss if we didn't uh, dive into a little bit further. So first off, you said you had some extra time in medical school. What is that about?
1: (laughs) Um, I guess what I meant is that, so back in the day, the first two years of medical school, were all book studying. Mm -hmm. And then in the third and fourth years, you started on the wards. So you would interact Mm -hmm. with residents and staff and see patients and help out and dictate notes and, you know, begin to take care of people and learn the craft, but you could pick and choose a little bit. Okay. So you could pick and choose a little bit. So you had some flexibility in what you wanted to pursue. And so those were called elective rotations. And so I had already done an orthopedics rotation. I felt pretty comfortable with my choice. Turns out I was wrong, but that's okay. And so I thought, you know, my future is set. Well, try something else, something cool, learn a little bit. And then it ended up being that ENT, you know, changed my life.
0: Wow. That's so, so cool.
1: Yeah, a lot of people have stories like that. No one really knows. ENT is sort of like, you know, the lion the witch in the wardrobe where you open the wardrobe and there's this whole like world inside, you know, but people wow. don't really get exposure to it. And mm. oftentimes, but once they do, or if they do, a lot of people are really taken by it and end up, you know, trying to get a spot.
0: Ah, that's wonderful. The other thing you mentioned was that you said that you sang a couple seasons in the New York opera as a child. Mm -hmm. Can you talk with us about that? How did that come about? How did you become a trained opera singer as a child?
1: (laughs) Well, I was pretty good with languages and am pretty good with languages and sound and, you know, musical kid. I played the cello as a child and stuff like that. So who's the economist talks about the silent hand? Adam Smith, is it? Smith. Yes. Anyway, so the silent hand in our household was definitely my mother. So she pretty much thought they dreamed this up and said, Hey, uh, why don't you go to a, this is in, a third grade? Okay. Oh. And third grade, she just said, why don't you go try out for the opera? And I was like, okay, whatever. And so I did. And for those who are not familiar, they really kind of sock it to you during this by making you sing the Star Spangled Banner. Oh. So sing, singing the Star Spangled Banner well is not easy.
2: Yes. Um, yes. As many
1: of us have heard from people butchering it on television or, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. at baseball games, like Often it doesn't go that well. Yeah. So anyway, they made us sing that. You know, I could say words in different languages because most of the the operas are not in English. Mm-hmm. And so I got a spot. So I sang for two seasons at the Metropolitan and two seasons at the City Opera. Mostly what we were involved with was singing in the children's choir with for Carmen oh. and Tosca and a German opera called Die Totestadt, which is the dead city. Oh, Um, which was a little dark, but anyway, that's okay.
0: Wow. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So it was, I mean, the great part is as an eight-year-old, you're not, you don't know anything. And honestly, when you're on stage, all the floodlights make it so you can't see the audience. Mm -hmm. So you just Mm -hmm. go out, you do your thing, you go home, you know, no big deal.
0: Yeah. Wow. So four seasons essentially with two two, different.
1: Well, yeah. So sure. However you want to. Sure. Sure.
0: Sure. So why did you stop?
1: So, yeah, good question. And so it turns out that for Carmen, you have to be in the first act and the fourth act. And so these things usually start at about, you know, 7.30, 8 p.m. and don't get mm. done until close to midnight. So honestly, my parents at some point or another were like, we can't do this anymore. I was missing school a little bit because I was tired the next day, understandably. And so, you know, we agreed to call it quits.
2: mm
0: I see. But I mean,
1: I was not, you know, I was not born to be an opera star. I was certainly good enough to do the children's choir, but, you know, I didn't have that guitar hero burning desire to, you know, I have to be the, the number one on stage. Like, man, that's okay. Yeah. It, was, it was fantastic. And I enjoyed it. We sang at the Kennedy Center in Washington. Oh man. And we also uh, were recorded on Christmas or record, pre-recorded for Christmas day for the Today Show in like 1977 or something. So it was oh. all good fun.
0: That's awesome. I think that there's just such an uncanny connection though, between, you know, what you do today as a medical doctor and your voice being lent to opera singing as a child. I think that is so cool.
1: Yeah. It all seems like a coherent path at the end of the day.
0: It does. It does
1: indeed. And medicine allows for a lot of different little niches for people to find, and hopefully they're lucky enough to find something that's fulfilling.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Considering how much of your life you spend practicing medicine and helping people and all the other things that you described that go along with being a academician in your field as well, which speaking of, I mean, I know we touched on this a little bit when we first started talking today, but I am curious as to how much of your time today you spend researching and writing and, and lecturing, et cetera.
1: Sure. With the caveat that COVID certainly has thrown you know, the COVID global pandemic has thrown a big wrench into, well, just about everything. I will spend time doing research projects with our fellow or our residents. And I have a collaboration with a Taiwanese doctor in Taipei who spent a whole year here learning and hanging out and doing some research and getting oriented to laryngology. And so we do some distal work together on a number of different projects and speak via Zoom. So there are, you know, there's hope even for Luddites like me to be able to learn Zoom and (laughs) communicate internationally and everything. So we speak with a 12 hour time difference, 12 or 13, you know, and continue to do research together. And so in answer to your question, I would say it's, I don't know, maybe 30% of the time, something like that, something in that range. That's great. That's Mm -hmm. great.
0: What do you enjoy most about that aspect of your work?
1: Yeah. So people, I think, get different things out of research. For me, it's about trying to ask pertinent questions, things in general that matter, things that will affect either the way that we think about something or the practice of something. So my timing within laryngology, I'm not sure it could have been any better because when this micro field started some 20 years ago, it was still pretty much the wild west in terms of our knowledge of even basic physiology, which is still evolving, Mm -hmm. Uh, how certain disease processes come to be, minimally invasive techniques, like the office procedures that you referenced before, you know, new ways of thinking about how to reconstruct a vocal cord. And, you know, I've spent anywhere between six months on a project to eight years on a project, depending on what it is. And so being able to follow the thread, try to build a better mousetrap, and it's really been very evolutionary rather than revolutionary. So, you know, if we can do this, maybe we can do that. And
2: mm-hmm. If we do that,
1: maybe we do this other thing.
2: Mm-hmm. And so it's
1: been this sort of grand, slow, general expansion of the world of possibilities, trying to be thoughtful, cautious, and, you know, ethical along the way to make sure we're helping and not hurting people and trying to engage with patients also to be members of the journey, you know, to be walking the path with you. And I think as long as you do things in an ethical and communicative way, they're willing to go along with you. So joining up with patients and testing the waters here and there has been really wonderful.
0: Yeah, that's so great. Mm -hmm. and so fascinating, I'm sure, right?
1: Oh yeah. The Upper Airway is a fantastic place to hang around.
0: I can't say I ever thought about it that way, but now that you
1: should, (laughs) oh, but you should Claire. (laughs) we're going to get our hooks in you yet. Don't you worry.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, never too late for a career change, right? Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. It is incredibly obvious that you are very, very passionate about laryngology. Would you mind sharing a couple of really inspiring patient stories in particular? I would love to hear about, your connection to these patients and how they have impacted you both professionally and personally?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd be very happy to. I would say early in my career, this is, seems on the face of it to be kind of a banal example, but encompasses a theme which I think has played out in other ways. So in one of our outreach clinics, there was a young girl who had this skin condition, that was refractory to medications every time she would go outside she would break out she couldn't go outside and play she couldn't hang out with her friends and it was really very debilitating particularly for a young girl so i looked it up and there were a couple of case reports somehow about how tonsillectomy actually would alter their person's immune system in a way where their skin condition would get better oh and so with a little bit of reading and a little bit of explaining to the mom and The child we did a simple garden variety tonsillectomy and she was cured and so she went back to school she went could play outside with her friends she could you know basically resume much more of a normal life and the takeaway is not that tonsillectomy is awesome which it can certainly can be the the takeaway for me was that with a little bit of studying with a little bit of engagement on the particularly the tougher ones
2: Mm.
1: That not only can you engage with the family, help the person, one hopes, but then also have that kind of pioneering, almost warrior spirit infuse your attitude towards how to help some of the toughest patients, mm-hmm. things that people can't figure out, things where it's just a bad situation and you know what modest changes might be affected to be able to at least improve their status. Yeah. You know, restoration of normal function with what we do. Uh, sometimes we can do that, but most of the time we can at least affect improvement. And so trying to take some of the tougher ones and embracing that challenge has been, I would say a hallmark for our team. And instead of saying, oh, go somewhere else, like, no, let's see what we can do first. Let's see what we can do. And so I think patients really appreciate that focus and dedication. And kind of willingness to walk with them.
0: Yeah, in this patient in particular, were you kind of like the last resort? I mean, had they f-
1: no, tried I mean, figures? Yeah, this was a rural area where there's there just wasn't a lot of it's just not a lot of healthcare. Period. Yeah. And so one of our features, you know, there's something in Wisconsin called the Wisconsin Idea, which mm-hmm. started 100 years ago between the state government and the university, where the mission statement of the university is that we exist to serve the people of Wisconsin and beyond. So it's a service-based notion. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I can get behind. That's a a good feeling. And so we do this outreach clinic, which is a good 65 miles from here. And, you know, all of us within the division do stuff like this. And so I just happened to encounter this young girl and her family at that time. I mean, obviously this has nothing to do with laryngology per se, but it's the theme of it. Mm -hmm. That infuses how we deal with tough voice patients, tough airway patients, tough swallowing troubles, where we feel willing to take it on as best we can.
0: Yeah. Wow. What a great story. Do you have another one that you might be able to share with us?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I'll tell you two brief ones. Maybe this is, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, there was a local teacher, a woman who taught in the school system and she had a couple of kids vocally very demanding lifestyle and she ended up with what's called a vocal cord paralysis and so means that one vocal cord doesn't move and because the vocal cords need to move back and forth and be able to touch each other when we voice she had a very breathy voice she a lot of air was escaping when she would try to make sound couldn't make herself heard trouble projecting her voice vocal strain it's really kind of a disaster for people who are vocally active
2: Mm -hmm. Anyway, we
1: did an operation for her to move it towards the middle of her voice box so the other vocal cord could meet it. And she had a really good result, fortunately, and was able to resume her life. And she went back to work as a teacher doing her job, you know, with no real extra stuff like an amplification system, which I reckon we'll get to this, but should be recommended for every teacher. Every teacher should have an amplifier, in my humble opinion. But anyway, she got to go back to her life and just put it in her rear view mirror. Wow. There's another, an airway patient who came in with this very odd looking lump under her vocal cord that was obstructing about 90% of her airway. And so poor thing, she had to have what's called a tracheotomy tube mm-hmm. temporarily to be able to secure her airway so she could breathe. And then we did biopsies and it was actually this very odd lump tumor which we were able to excise and then put her airway back together and even take part of the lining of her cheek to line the airway so that there wasn't a big raw surface. So it was wow. a very unusual situation, but she got her trach tube out. She has normal swallowing. She has normal voicing. She has completely normal breathing and is back to doing her thing. And that's awfully, you know, rewarding. Mm-hmm. So she did nicely. I'm very happy for her.
0: That's great. That's great. And again, just like you mentioned in some of the research that you do, right? You are always engaging in such innovative and interesting ways to try to solve these problems for people.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel extremely fortunate. I feel like I'm just, you know, the byproduct of a lot of good luck. So I, you know, had educated parents. I went to great schools. I had great teachers. I had wonderful laryngeal training when I was a fellow with Dr. Zytel's, very passionate about him. He makes me look like a dilettante, frankly, as far as the energy level and the, and that's fine. But I was very, very hungry for information, particularly at that age and really wanted to be good at it. And so the matchup of that educational opportunity and my own attitude was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I don't like being afraid of the material. I want to go after it and see how we can do it better and really try and understand it from the inside out. And if you can do that, it feels a lot more like playing than work. Mm -hmm. It feels like playtime and fun and innovation and what if and what if and what if. And sometimes you're wrong and sometimes you're right.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you're right more often than you are wrong. Try. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly, incredibly inspiring.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that.
1: Sure.
0: Affinity Strategies is a full-service nonprofit healthcare association management and stakeholder engagement firm. They use digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize both staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategies Services, the team, and the mission driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at www.affinity strategies.com. All right, Dr. Daly, we have got Whoa. a. <laughs> We've got a few more questions for you today. Hoping that is all right with you.
1: Sounds fantastic.
0: Awesome. So, you know, thinking about the fact that we have all been living through this pandemic going on uh, two years here, you being a healthcare provider have obviously have seen it up close and personal far more than the average person. How would you say the pandemic has impacted your practice?
1: Well, it's impacted it in a lot of ways. Number one is telemedicine has grown. I have never had any interaction with telemedicine, which I have mixed feelings about. It's not all bad or all good, but it definitely has a role. We saw far fewer patients in the early, let's call it the first six months of the pandemic because we were all trying to adjust. Or what's the modern word? To pivot. pivot. So we all pivoted. We're pivoting. Here we are pivoting. <laughs> we're pivoting.
0: <laughs> still pivoting still pivoting
1: <laughs> Yes. and it meant actually seeing very few patients except for emergencies which there turned out to be a lot of because people wouldn't come in for healthcare. care yeah so people would wait and they would wait and they would wait and then they'd come in with a critical airway or they'd come in with some advanced problem of whatever variety so it was a strange mix of kind of the banal and the horrific That has settled out over the last period of time. I still think based on our essential clinic numbers and operation numbers and stuff, we're just not seeing as much or doing as much um, in my particular field. I feel like there are a lot of people who are out there who have problems and eventually they'll probably show up. On the other hand, a lot of people have lost their jobs. They may have lost their health care, had financial problems. They're scared of coming to a medical center. They don't want to get COVID tested with the swab in the nose. A variety of reasons why people are, I would say in general, either afraid or have barriers. So we'll see how that plays out over the next period of time with whether we have more waves of Delta or Delta like variants, the national financial picture, hospital stability, et cetera. We've been very fortunate with our hospital stability component. So I'm grateful for that. That's
0: great you know in interacting with with lots of different folks over the last you know two years or so watching people pivot like you have said have you been able to leverage any aspects of what you've encountered during the pandemic as sort of a wake up call to finally be able to maybe make some changes to certain aspects of medical care delivery or or maybe other aspects of medicine
1: not really from the perspective that this has been very much a survival time yeah um, not only in terms of trying not to get covid because in otolaryngology we are very much quite literally in people's grills all day mm-hmm. and for me in particular and some of you know my partners et cetera, we do a lot of office based procedures okay so this means people would they have to have their mask off pretty much we get everybody covid tested in advance but that's no guarantee You Mm -hmm. put on your N95 and glasses and whatever, it's still no guarantee. And, you know, we do 600 of these a year or so. So being an upper airway specialist during COVID has been a little bit anxiety provoking at times, particularly prior to being vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, So getting a vaccine and more recently a booster and wearing an N95 religiously, I feel pretty good about it knowing it's an airborne disease, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to get it. And several of my Mm -hmm. colleagues have gotten it I know they're careful too, and they're all vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So in answer to your question, it hasn't really been in some sense a fantastic time for more massive or thoughtful changes other than public health considerations. Sure. So sure. certainly infectious disease is the spot to think about public health other than like clean running water and you know, air and food sources and stuff, which we can talk about, but trying to encourage people to get vaccinated, trying to encourage them strongly to wear masks. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, as you know, with depending on your favorite social media outlet or your predilection for believing certain sources, people can get information that is quite biased one way or quite biased another, et cetera. So there's a lot of polarization nowadays. Yeah. and So being able to interact with people from a physician's perspective, simply trying to encourage them to promote their health and the health of others. Mm -hmm. by getting vaccinated, actually wearing your mask and recognizing that this is bigger than us. This is bigger than you and thinking in a grander perspective. So I would say if anything, it's kind of promoted a public health or a broader view of health rather than just our little nerd subspecialty.
0: Yeah, that's right. And in turn, really helping, you know, just the average person right on the street understand the importance. Yeah, well, thank you for your hand in, in doing that very important work
1: yeah I have been shocked actually, in fact, at what people have told me, and really, it relates to the sources for their information, which, as I mentioned, can you know be biased one way or the other. There's just a lot of that now. And so recognizing that trend is out there helps to frame the conversation in a way where it's a little bit more dispassionate.
0: That's right. That's right. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Switching gears a little bit, How does public policy influence? your subspecialty of laryngology.
1: I assume you mean related to medicine?
0: Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: So one thing we may get to today is the notion of healthcare barriers. Yes. And to me, there's no question the biggest barrier, the two big ones are health insurance. Do you have it? Do you not? And if so, what kind? Uh, And two is navigating a system.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: people who have friends or family or someone who has at least some minor experience with the medical system will absolutely do better than people who do not. People who have health insurance, whatever kind, something, anything, will definitely do better than people who do not.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, the single biggest cause, as I understand it, of losing your mortgage is medical bills. Yeah. And losing your mortgage, of course, is a disaster financially. So... I would say those are the two biggest barriers and they manifest every day. They manifest every day in our clinic, whom we're able to see, whom we're not able to see, whom we have to wrestle with hospital administration with, or trying to get them emergency insurance through, you know, Medicaid or whatever it's going to be. These are real challenges and, you know, the most extreme situations get taken care of because otherwise those individuals are going to die and that's not acceptable Mm -hmm. or, They're not as acute or dangerous. And then those people wait or they don't get care. Mm. And that's just the way it is in America right now. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So it's a mess. It's a mess, but it's a reasonably predictable mess.
2: Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah. And to see that play out every single day in your clinics has got to be wearing.
1: It's, I would say it's a predictable enough, you know, even if there's a song you don't like, you know, that it's going to play the same way every Mm -hmm. day. You know, mm-hmm. oh, there's that terrible song. Oh, well, it's the same song. Mm-hmm. So it's not a surprise anymore, but it doesn't make it unfortunate to listen to. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, it's a great
1: analogy. <laughs> As it were, so. <laughs>
0: great analogy. Yeah, indeed. In thinking a little bit about prevention, and maybe again, we set aside COVID for a moment, what role does prevention play in laryngology?
1: Yeah, so this is a wonderful, wonderful question. If there's one thing that, you know, I get the magic wand, you know, Mm -hmm. Gandalf, Harry Potter, whoever your favorite is, I don't care. Um, You get the magic wand. Number one is you get rid of smoking. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Smoking is responsible for a ton of upper airway disease. We obviously all know about lung cancer, emphysema, COPD, exacerbation of asthma, contributes to heart disease, very huge contributor to head and neck cancer, bladder cancer, uh, soft geocancer, stomach cancer, you know, vascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, you name it. So that would be kind of number one
2: mm-hmm.
1: if we're thinking big picture. So we're all aware of big business and Congress and lobbying and big pharma, big food, big oil, big, if it has big in front of it, it means that it's going to get messy. That's right. And so, you know, tobacco industry obviously is a multi-billion dollar industry and is not going to be turned away as easily as all that. Modern tobacco is the single most addictive drug ever known to mankind. It's the hardest to quit, harder than cocaine or heroin or meth or anything. And it's sold at the drugstore, Mm -hmm. which is my personal favorite, right? You can go to the drugstore, get your medicine for your asthma or your whatever, and also pick up a carton of Winston's or whatever it's going to be. That's right. So it's madness, right? I mean, it's it's crazy talk mm-hmm. that America runs this way. And yet it does, of course. Mm-hmm. So it's a big one. That's probably number one, two, and three on the hit list as far as prevention. Everything else really is farther down the list. Do we want to do better with reflux care? Yes. Do we want to do better with healthy food and diets? Absolutely. You know, and there are certain diseases that we see nowadays that probably didn't exist a hundred years ago and have to do with modern stuff. Is it diet? Is it additives? Is it, you know, phthalates in plastics? Is it BPA? Is it Teflon, which is in everything? Is it, I don't know. I don't know. But it ain't right. Yeah. And it's everywhere, right? It's probably in that microphone of yours. Okay. Not to make you freaky or whatever, but the fact of the matter is it's everywhere. Yeah. And so as we get farther along, particularly as the population grows, we have climate change, with a bunch of other stuff to contend with, you know, there will be serious conversations, I hope, about how we do things, both from a cost perspective, health perspective, environmental perspective. So we've created a lot of diseases that we now treat, which may in fact have been preventable to start with.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So Mm -hmm. it makes one think about very big picture, you know, we're asking about big picture stuff before, certainly, especially as one has kids, and you know, you start seeing, thinking well beyond yourself about public health issues, those are public health issues.
0: That's right. That's so helpful. And I know that our listeners will find that um, well, yeah.
1: I mean, advice helpful. You don't, have to, you don't have to look very far in the literature to find that we live in kind of a toxic environment. And that's just the way it is for right now, unless one is very thoughtful about it. And even if you are thoughtful, like good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that's a question right. of yes or no, it's a question of mitigation. Like how do you turn down the dial? Mm-hmm. So that'll mm-hmm. be our jobs as Americans going forward.
0: Yeah, that notion of harm mitigation is real, isn't it?
1: It is real. Yeah. Yeah. You bet.
0: That's very, very helpful. Again, switching gears a little bit with, yeah. with some of
1: our previous Sorry, questions. Didn't mean to you doomsday there, but uh, no, no, no. You're, you know, it's, not it's, not to be a negative Nancy or whatever, <laughs> but I feel like these things are real, and listeners should pay attention.
0: They do. It is absolutely important. That's part of the reason why we are doing this series is we want people to come away from our episodes as being more informed, right? And Mm -hmm. you're helping with that. Oh, good. Yes. So could you tell me about the racial disparities you see in the care of your laryngology patients?
1: Absolutely. Oftentimes in modern Wisconsin, modern U.S., where there are racial disparities, there are financial disparities Mm -hmm. and cultural disparities. So Mm -hmm. I would say, ultimately, it has less to do with race per se than it has to do with money and cultural understanding of medicine or feeling afraid of modern medicine or that sort of thing. Okay. So those are really the key features. There are meaningful cultural differences that exist in terms of trusting the medical system Mm -hmm. or trusting vaccines or trusting in therapy X or Y or Z. So that I would say is a big one. And then, of course, if you don't have the money to pay for your health insurance or, you know, some minor costs here and there, even for preventive care, it's a problem. It's a big problem. It's a major negative indicator of future health impacts and outcomes. So that's, I think, in general, the underpinnings of those, you know, racial disparities that you mentioned is really it's kind of other stuff. From a practical perspective.
2: Okay,
0: that's good to know.
1: Okay. Keeping in mind, I'm no expert on the topic.
0: Sure, but you know, you see it every day. Yes. In your practice, and so you understand how it plays out. If you were to just to talk to somebody, you know, the average listener about that issue, what could somebody like me do to help lessen those barriers that we've been talking a little bit about?
1: First of all, go get vaccinated. Like get every, get every (laughs) vaccine that you can
2: Mm -hmm.
1: within reason, you know, Mm -hmm. people for years and years have not been upset about no one getting smallpox or diphtheria or measles or mumps or rubella or influenza or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it strikes me as unfortunate that, you know, COVID somehow is this outlier where no, 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 we'll vaccinate all this other stuff, but COVID, no way. It just, it's completely illogical to me. Mm -hmm. So there's that. So I would encourage everyone, please, to go get vaccinated unless there's some other good reason not to. Number two, and in many ways more importantly, is no matter how terrible your health insurance might be, go get some. Sign up, do it, do some research, talk to friends, Google, do whatever you can. Get a job, if you can, that supports some form of health insurance, no matter how terrible it is. Because some beats the pants out of nothing.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And the other is question the system. Mm. So when you come in, ask questions. It's okay. You should. It's your body. It's your health. What am I doing? What are the data? What are the most important things to help me stay healthy? Go to your primary. Find a primary. Find someone. Ask them, what are the top three things that I can do to stay healthy? Tell me. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Give me the top three. I'm a big fan of top three. Top three don'ts, top three do's. And you could even do it like that. What are the three things I shouldn't do? Mm-hmm. What are the three things I should do? Okay. Thanks. Bye.
0: That's great.
1: Right. Keep it simple. Engage the medical system proactively. Ask your questions. Mm-hmm. Think about your health as a resource, right? For yourself, for your children, for your family, for whatever. Can't help anyone if you're sick. Put on your own oxygen mask first. Right. Got to do it.
0: That's great. That's right. Oh, that's so, so helpful. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah, you bet. That's just one person's opinion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But seems very pragmatic to me. It is. Yeah. So before we move on to our rapid fire round of questions for you, Dr.
1: Daly. Okay. I'm so ready. I'm so ready. Claire.
0: I can't tell you <laughs> how
1: much I've been looking forward to oh, yeah, the yeah. second part of our right, conversation. You better, be it to the, you better bring it. I'm bringing it. All I, right. You better bring I, trust it. Trust me. All right. But
0: before we get there, I would really love if you were able to provide some final thoughts regarding whether it's your practice, your patients, or healthcare in general with our listeners.
1: Well, I feel like in some sense, I kind of gave my fire and brimstone advice a moment ago those are really the big ones. You know, if you're going to buy food, look at the ingredients. Mm -hmm. If you're going to buy food, make sure it's actually food and not, not food, right? In general things in the middle of the store are Mm -hmm. less food than things around the periphery of your supermarket. Mm -hmm. Things that are fresh, you know, depending on where you live, find people who own chickens, get Mm -hmm. eggs from them. If they're local farmers where you can get vegetables or meats or something from them, do it. There've been farmer's markets for as long as, you know, we've been around pretty much in some sense or another. So it's out there, but look around, self-educate, don't believe the hype, ask about your meds, ask about this and that, take care of yourself, be proactive to your body, all that kind of stuff.
0: And get the COVID vaccine.
1: And get the COVID vaccine, please.
0: That's right. All right. It's the moment we've both been waiting for. All right. Get yourself warmed up. Here we go. I'm loose. All right. All right. Do a little I'm ready. stretch. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. All right. Our first question. Describe yourself in three words.
1: Nutty driven kind.
0: Oh, love it. Favorite day of the week. Wednesday. Why?
1: <laughs> so the way my life is set up Most of my heavy lifting for the week is done by the end of Wednesday. And I get to use my mind a little bit more Thursday and Friday and get to think a little bit more and be organized, be more myself. That's why.
0: Wonderful. Last song you downloaded.
1: I don't download songs. My daughter does that for me.
0: Okay. Let's rephrase the question. Last song your daughter downloaded for you.
1: California Dreamin' by Sia. Oh.
0: I see you have a broad. I have a teen. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Or you have a teenager. She's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals?
1: Animals for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there are far more different types of animals than there are humans. Mm-hmm. So they have been understanding the world in a different way than we have for Hundreds and thousands and millions of years, so there'd be a lot more to learn.
0: Ah, oh, that's cool. Favorite junk food?
1: Uh, cheddar and sour cream ruffles. It's a it's an Achilles heel. I can't explain it. I don't really eat junk food, but I eat that, and I can't stop myself.
0: Well, I'm probably not going to be able to stop myself now either. Now that you've they're told really, me about so that.
1: Good.
2: So
0: good. <laughs> mm. Ask for permission or forgiveness.
1: Hmm. This is a good one, not to be that guy or anything, but I think I'm kind of right in the middle. I know, I know it seems, it doesn't seem right coming out of my mouth. No. Yeah, (laughs) I I recognize that, but it's actually true. If I had to tilt it, probably more permission. I don't like upsetting people uh, in general. So probably if I had to tilt it, because I know you want a real answer, it'd probably be more permission than forgiveness, I think.
0: All right, all right. What is the most boring thing?
1: ever uh not having a mental bone to chew on yeah yeah not having some sort of challenge or something to do i'm definitely a worker like to work like to do stuff like to move the peanut forward as they say so not having the opportunity for that is just the worst
0: <sighs> it's like time stands still huh terrible mm. how many times did you sneeze in the last 7 days
1: oh a lot Yeah. I don't have allergies and I don't whatever. I can't explain it, but as my children will tell you, I sneeze a lot and I sneeze really loud, really loud. Can hear it from three closed door rooms away. It's traumatic and frequent, inexplicable way. Yeah. But yeah, no allergies. I don't have allergies. I just sneeze a bunch. It's a, it's a quirk.
0: Well, you're keeping everybody in your house on their toes, aren't you? Oh
1: God. Yeah. They know, always know where I am. (laughs)
0: What is the fastest you've ever driven a car?
1: Uh, So off the record, probably 115 miles an hour. Okay. Where Mm
0: -hmm. were you when you were driving that fast?
1: Uh, It's in an undisclosed location.
0: (laughs) All right. You did say off the record. Yes. Okay. Okay. We'll leave it at that.
1: And you can't get on me because I did answer your question.
0: I know you did. You did. Thank you. You're welcome. I I appreciate that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What's for dinner tonight?
1: we're actually going to uh, dinner with some friends who are wonderful cooks so mercifully uh, there's no cooking tonight nice but in general at home it's a lot of uh soups stews vegetables my oldest is a vegetarian so i've upped my game in terms of preparing veggie food mm. yeah mostly yes i would say soups, stews and vegetables are the big ones yeah very good so good yes
0: Mostly plant-based in general?
1: I don't know that we're there yet as a family. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've certainly had a trend in that direction, say, in the last two to three years in a Mm -hmm. bigger way. So like many, we're working on it. Yeah, (laughs) of
0: course. Of course. Well, you know, living in our country doesn't exactly make it easy to... No,
1: um, it doesn't. But I, I definitely have a new friend in the Instapot, so...
0: Oh, yeah. Such a great, yeah, such cool. a great. Apply. No financial,
1: whatever. Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, we, neither <laughs> do, of us have any financial. But I, do, I do love my Instapot.
0: That's awesome. Good for you. Dawn or dusk?
1: Oh, dawn. Why? Well, the whole day's ahead of you. So much possibility, so much to do. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's pretty. It's only going to yes. get lighter for yeah. you know quite a while. All is revealed. <laughs> Yes. Mm. It's like starting okay.
0: over every day, right?
1: Every day you get a new start. Yeah.
0: Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers?
1: No. In fact, it's probably a sick, guilty pleasure, I would think. <laughs> 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 right? Yeah. Go to the dark side for a little while. That's right. You know, sit there and write, how do you like that, Mr. Lion? Right? Kind of thing. I like it. Yeah, I think, I think so.
0: That's a little bit of a revenge, right? Yeah,
1: you know, a little, little bit of dark side for a little while, having a cracker. Sure, yeah. why not?
0: Huh, that's excellent. Yeah. Who do you admire?
1: I admire a lot of people. I admire anybody who is themselves. Hmm. I, I admire people who are authentic. I admire people who are dedicated. I admire people who are kind. I admire people who want to make the world a better place. And I don't admire people who behave in ways that take up the opposite of those qualities.
0: Mm, that's nice.
1: Yeah, I tend to view the world in two general categories of people one is fabric makers, and the other one is fabric rippers. So I think we all want to strive to be fabric makers and I think find, so too. find things together and make the world a better place.
0: Absolutely. What are you currently reading?
1: I'm currently reading a biography of Dwight Eisenhower. Speaking of fabric makers,
0: yeah, yeah. Are you enjoying it so far?
1: I'm enjoying it a lot. He was awesome. very, he was a very special guy, very principled, very hard work, very hardworking, very dedicated, humble, thoughtful, crafty, and a unifier. Nice. Yeah, very impressive guy.
0: Cool, cool. And we're already to the end of our rapid That's fire the end questions. Of wow, Just how about one, that? One more. Oh.
1: Oh, one one more. Oh my God. I know. That's crazy.
0: I know. I know. What is your dream job? Of course, other than the one you currently have.
1: If I had the training for it, which I don't, it would be writing movie soundtracks.
0: Oh, that is fascinating.
1: So my yeah, so my complete and total idol is John Williams. Second place goes to Hans Zimmer, but really it's John Williams all the way. Sorry. I know you're watching this. (laughs) Yeah. I know he's tuned in. So yeah, no, John Williams and uh, people who do clever movie soundtracks. I think it makes so much of a difference. I'm a big movie fan and how all those things are crafted and blended together. Again, it's the sound uh, component coming back. So I would very happily be a movie soundtrack maker. Yeah.
0: What a, what a great job. And you are so right. I mean, you think about such great movies have great soundtracks.
1: Yeah. Well they right? have. Oh yeah. Please. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's what a cool job. What a cool yeah, job. That
1: would be that would be a sweet dream job. Mm-hmm.
0: It would. Well, maybe that's your second career.
1: Yeah. Next life.
0: Okay. Next life.
1: Probably not this one. Too All bad. right.
0: Yeah. Too bad. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Well, Dr. Daly, this has been an incredible pleasure. You have shared so much great information with our listeners. I have incredibly enjoyed our time together and thank you so much for doing what you do every day for your patients and and just patients in general. Just thank you so, so much.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure to be in healthcare. Thank you for your time and your awesome sets of questions. And for yeah, setting this up, keeping it, keeping it lively, keeping it real. And uh yeah, hopefully people will hear a couple of things and I'll probably get a couple of tomatoes thrown at me here and there, and that's okay. At least people will be talking and it's okay.
0: That's right. We're just here to get people thinking and yep. and doing something different. Get right? the
1: noggin going. Love it.
0: That's right. So thank you. Thanks again. My pleasure. Such an informative conversation with Dr. Daly he shared lots of pragmatic advice as well as interesting stories. First, it was fascinating to hear about Dr. Daly's childhood pursuit of opera singing and his practice within the microfield of laryngology. The connection between being an opera singer as a kid and being a upper respiratory specialist today cannot just be serendipitous. Second, he explained that with some studying and engaging with his patients, he has been able to pioneer solutions to help some of the toughest cases. Dr. Daly stated that being innovative is key to continuing the evolution of his field of medicine. It seems to me that the same holds true for most things in life. Lastly, Dr. Daly imparted candid advice on what steps you can take to stay healthy and minimize the barriers that many patients face when engaging with the healthcare system. Bottom line, Dr. Daly is all about encouraging the promotion of your health and the health of others. And that there are so many things in this world that are bigger than just you and me. Today's episode was written, researched, and hosted by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by DJ Stanyars and music from Caleb Justinger. You can find House Call on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. Share it with your friends. And if you enjoy what you are hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call and Affinity Strategies podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thank you for listening. I'm Claire Vincent. (laughs)